Let us now turn to the passage that we read, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and reading again at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I imagine that what is written in this third chapter of the book of Genesis is familiar to most, if not all, present here today and also to any who may be watching online. To say I would be extremely disappointed if that not the case would be a huge understatement. As we look briefly at our text, I'd like to ask a question in the hope that all our minds might be focused on what has been taught and the lessons to be learned. Questions sometimes can leave us uncomfortable, but they are a good method of engaging our minds. The question is this, have you ever thought about why did the Son of God, Jesus Christ, appear in the world? Now I'd like you to think carefully before you mentally write down the answer. For there is a, a specific answer given in the Bible to that question. When I was in school, it's a long time ago now, you might get an exercise returned, and across your exercise would be written in red letters, please answer the question. You possibly thought that's what you were doing when you completed the exercise. In those days, I'm not sure if true today, but teachers, I think they were in love with their red ink pens. It was a painful but useful lesson to learn that no answer would suffice except the one that answered the question which was being asked. And that, of course, involved understanding the question in the first place. Remember the question that I asked here. Why did the Son of God, Jesus Christ, appear in the world? And if you are asking me where can the answer be found in the Bible, the answer is to be found in the first letter of John, chapter 3 and verse 8. And to save you looking it up, I'll quote what the Apostle John has written. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he appeared in the world. That's the biblical answer to the question. Well, I'd like to suggest four thoughts from our text today because his appearance was preceded by first, 
the poisonous effect of sin. Secondly, by the pronouncement of judgment. Thirdly, by the prophecy of conflict. And fourthly, by the proclamation of a great promise. And all of that is found within our text. First, the poisonous effect of sin. According to the narrative, both Adam and Eve succumb to the serpent's temptation to eat the forbidden fruit. Their minds and hearts were poisoned, you might say, by the lethal injection of satanic lies. Do you see what that does? It turns things right around so that the lie is accepted as truth and truth is accepted as the lie. That's the evil of sin. And it's as prevalent in our world today as it was on the day that Adam and Eve succumbed to that lethal injection. As a, a student, I was privileged to attend the ministry of the late uh, J. Douglas Macmillan in the city of Aberdeen in the late 1960s. He was a, a, a powerful evangelist and a most caring pastor. His ministry was particularly blessed to the then student body. Some 12 years later, our paths were to cross again. I was in my first year as a divinity student in Edinburgh, and he was in his first year as a professor of church history. I still remember when I met him in the passage in the college, not knowing what lay before me. And in a booming voice, he said, Oh, Donald, he said, your palms are very sweaty as he shook my hand, and there, were, there was a good reason that they were sweaty, as I contemplated beginning studying again in my mid-thirties. He was a source of encouragement, and the reason I mention that is a book titled The God of All Grace, containing some of his sermons, was published several years after his death. And in one sermon in that book, he asks the following several questions. You must ask yourself why men are so blind to the truth of God. Why is it that the vast multitude in our day do not believe in the gospel, do not pray, do not enter a church, and do not esteem God? Why is it that man is so unwilling to believe the truth? Now, incidentally, these words came from a sermon that was preached in 1979. But they could just as easily have been spoken today. They are just as relevant and up to date. And his own response was, when we bring our questions back, to the third chapter of Genesis, we begin to understand 
that the minds of men and women have been conditioned by sin. And that is so true. We read how Adam and Eve sought to hide themselves from God. They were using leaves from a tree created by God himself in seeking to hide their spiritual nakedness. It's a tragic, pitiful picture of the consequence of sin in the life of both Adam and Eve. And I wonder if anyone here today is seeking to hide behind the same kind of useless, flimsy clothing. For example, the fig leaves of good works. The fig leaves of church attendance. That in itself is incapable of cloaking our sin-born nakedness. It won't bring us salvation. No covering will do except the covering that has been provided by a merciful and gracious God in Christ Jesus the Son. Here are those, Adam and Eve, who had been surrounded by the great, unfailing, lavish generosity of the Almighty, great Creator God on every side. And though they're seeking to hide from the presence that once assured them, but now because of sin frightens them. They are called to stand before God. And that will happen to every one of us sooner or later. The Apostle Paul reminds us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We cannot appear, we cannot refuse to appear there. And my friend, if you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ, what will be your defense? Have you thought about it? Because the Bible tells us that no defense will be accepted except the one offered by the one who is designated an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Engage your services now, if you have not already done so. And in the passage we read, God asks probing, searching questions which elicit their confession of sin. And you see the picture that emerges it's not just of alienation between God and man, but even alienation within the marital union. The blame game gets underway. Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me, says a guilty Adam. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And you see what he's doing? He's not just blaming Eve. He is ultimately blaming the great creator God who does all things well. That's the effect of the blinding consequences of sin. Eve blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And you notice both make the same admission. I ate. I ate. Both Adam and Eve. And then you see the tensions 
already that sin creates. Tensions, incidentally, that are spoken of as part of the pronouncement of judgment. In pain, God says to Eve, you shall bring forth children. A reference that is taken to refer to bringing a child into the world. I believe it includes that, but more. It can refer to the deep-seated alienation that mothers and fathers experience even with their own children. So here are those who are accustomed to enjoying intimacy or fellowship with God as those who once walked and talked with God but now alienated from Him. The poisonous effect of sin produced alienation and created tensions even within the intimacy of the family circle. That brings me to the second point, the pronouncement of judgment. Having elicited that guilt, the moment for sentencing had arrived. Note how in verses 14 and 15, God pronounces the divine curse upon the serpent, upon Satan. Then secondly over Eve in verse 16, and then thirdly, in verses 17 to 19, he pronounces judgment on Adam. And it makes for grim reading, doesn't it? Notice the word curse is used twice. Once in verse 14, again in verse 17. That's the nature of the judgment that is pronounced. God curses humanity and the world in which we live. And for those who are familiar with the Shorter Catechism, you will know how the Reformers summarized the effect of the curse. The Catechism asks the question, into what he stated the fall bring mankind, and the answer the fall brought mankind into any state of sin and misery. That's what sin did. It did not bring the anticipated reward promised by the father of lies. It did not bring happiness and joy. It destroyed the perfect happiness and joy that once was experienced in their fellowship with God. It brought sin and misery. That cannot be overemphasized. Sin brought sin and misery. The fall brought sin and misery. And so the pronouncement of judgment begins with the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust, you shall eat all the days of your life. You cannot but ask the question, why did God curse the serpent when it was merely the instrument of Satan? Could it be that even in the pronouncement of judgment on the serpent, that God shows his, his special and fervent love to the human race. The, the form of the curse is seen in the movement of the serpent or the snake from now on slithering along the ground. And in the context, the emphasis is especially on the level of abasement characterized by the movement of the serpent. Eating dust is not meant to be understood literally. It is but a metaphor for humiliation. You remember 
how the metrical psalm speaks of they in the wilderness that dwell, how they must bow down before the great king. And they that are his enemies, what? They shall lick the very dust. In other words, they are going to suffer a level of humiliation that they have not anticipated or has entered their hearts. The prophecy of Micah, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. And in that context, it speaks of the triumph of God over the wicked. And that is, I think, marvelously borne out by the cringing fear of demons in the presence of Christ during his earthly ministry. It is spoken of in the book of Revelation and the promise of Satan's ultimate defeat in the day of judgment. It will be the end of all who shake their puny fists against the Almighty in stubborn and defiant unbelief. For them, there can only be the ultimate dread of divine wrath. Whereas in contrast, they who wait for the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall become, in other words, like the Lord. For what is true of him, he does not faint or grow weary. And that also shall be true of them. Satan's assault in the garden was aimed at God. He was seeking to usurp the great creator God. And you remember how uh, you find in the prophecy of Isaiah, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That was the stated aim and goal of Satan. But he failed miserably and continues to fail and will continue to fail. It is significant that God spoke this curse on the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve. Some would argue that God did this in order that the man and the woman would know that the fall not only provoked the wrath of God, but also displeased him because he loved them and held their salvation dear and precious. I have already referred to the judgment pronounced on the woman. Note also the ground is cursed, produce thorns and thistles, leaving the man to work in toil and in the sweat of his face. Labour which God ordained originally as a joyous part of a, the fundamental calling of man before sin entered now becomes a burden and a source of terrible weariness as a result of sin. And note in the pronouncement of judgment that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy intervenes to prevent the full judgment of death falling on Adam. The instruction was on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death, temporal, spiritual, and eternal. 
But here, even in the exercising and dispensing of judgment, there was, as it were, a stay of execution with regard to the penalty from descending there and then on Adam. He lived long after this. He enjoyed a measure of the favor of God after this. Contrary to that, the old world experienced the judgment of God in a very dramatic and sudden way. Only Noah's family were saved in the ark. And there, rather than mercy triumphing over judgment, you have mercy accompanying judgment. Mercy even succeeds in overturning judgment and making it a blessing. That is particularly demonstrated in the redemptive work of Christ. The pronouncement of judgment, the poisonous effect of sin. Thirdly, the prophecy of conflict. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The Lord, in, in speaking this word of judgment on the serpent, it's as if he's establishing human history as one long record of spiritual conflict. One writer sees in this prophecy of conflict the first great blessing of God to fallen humanity. He states, God has created enmity between man and Satan, which limits the hold that sin has on us and makes it possible for us to hear God's voice and to respond to him in spite of our misery. Well, whilst there may be some merit to that kind of view, personally, I have some difficulty with it. The work of the Holy Spirit is the power that enables a soul, dead in trespasses and in sin, to hear the voice of God in truth. We have all seen in the media, and just even now, the catastrophic effect of modern warfare, where even where you see on your television screens what appears to be substantial buildings reduced to heaps of rubble, lives destroyed, great suffering, much pain. And the fear is that it awakens more hatred and the whole gamut of emotions that hostilities inevitably stir up. But in this conflict that is spoken of here, the weapons of the believer are not military might or even dazzling flourishes of rhetoric. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, states, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And the significant words there are divine power. That, I believe, is the key to the weapons used by the apostle and by every evangelist. For only divine power can ultimately overcome the prejudiced resistance of the sinful human heart and bring it into subjection. 
to the reign of the King of Kings. Remember how Paul describes his own ministry. I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. That's why the apostle could also write, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So again and again there is reference to the power of God. Only the power of God through the gospel can subdue the rebellion of the sinful human heart so that divine sovereignty is acknowledged in that life. Well, God predicts this scenario of conflict in human history. To borrow another phrase uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the history of our race will be the history of one long irreconcilable war. Across all the ages, a terrible conflict will rage between two classes into which all people everywhere are divided because we are either the seed of the serpent or we're the seed of the woman. We either live in the grip of Satan's deceits or we are the heirs of redeeming grace and children of God. And between those two groups, God states there will be <coughs> perpetual enmity, enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, between the world and the church, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And when you go through the pages of the Bible, isn't that exactly what you see over and over again? Cain killing Abel, enmity. Noah mocked and rejected by his generation, enmity. Jacob and Esau, enmity. Isaac and Ishmael, enmity. Israel and the nations, enmity. The church and the world, enmity. Warfare, conflict. And the very real question for you and me today is in which group are we? Because ultimately there are only two groups at the end of time. You remember how Jesus himself describes those two groups as quoted for us in Matthew's Gospel when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. It's a sobering and solemn picture. Do you ever think about it? Who wouldn't love to hear the inviting words? Then the king will say on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yet it is very evident from the passage. That will not be true of all. For those on his left, the messages depart from me. It is spoken of as that which strikes terror into the hearts of all who continue in unbelief to the end of their days. The Bible speaks of them as seeking protection from the mountains and the rocks as they cry to them, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Such is the abject terror 
that fills the hearts of the unbelieving and that cry is but futile. The prophecy of conflict, the pronouncement of judgment, the poisonous effect of sin and finally the proclamation of a great promise. Notice at the heart of that age-old conflict that this passage predicts a climatic conflict between one individual and the serpent himself. He, singular, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of the many who are the seed of the woman, one is promised. Paul writing to the Galatians states that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And I already quoted 1 John 3.8, that the reason that he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is to wage warfare and win the victory. Jesus is the seed who is spoken of prophetically here. He is the fulfillment of the great promise that is proclaimed by the Lord in the pronouncement of judgment. The Old Testament prophets spoke of his coming. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, says the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Micah, you are Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. When news of his, of his birth was noised abroad, angels rejoiced. Shepherds sang his praise. Wise men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where is he that was born to be king of the Jews? And when they found the person of their quest, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they fell down and worshipped him. Those who waited for the fulfillment of the promise felt they could now depart this life now that they had seen the salvation of the Lord. That's the real message of Christmas. Jesus Christ came into this world in true human nature. Others, of course, influenced by the forces of darkness, were determined to remove them from this life. And so the tensions continued till they are brought to a climax at Calvary. The forces of darkness, the seed of the serpent, consider victory within that grasp as a whipped, beaten, naked Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross only to learn to their angst that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. As Paul writes to the Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The forces of darkness did not prevail, for the head of the serpent was crushed. Death and the grave could not hold the seed of the woman. He has risen in triumph and glory to the right hand above. 
And you remember Adam's pathetic plea. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate and implied in the statement of confession. It's not my fault, it's hers. She is the guilty one. Condemn her, let me live. But you notice the contrast. What the promised seed who bruised the head of the serpent says in, in, in stark contrast is quite different. Though his people, those whom he represents are the guilty ones, totally deserving of the full penalty of divine judgment. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ says to God on their behalf, Condemn me, let them live. Oh, how wonderful that is. Condemn me, let them live. Oh, friend, can you say today, that your hope and confidence for eternity is placed solely on the finished atoning work of the victorious seed of the woman who sits at the right hand above in glorious majesty. He alone is the good news that this first Christmas message conveys to man, the one who laid down his life, that unworthy, undeserving sinners like you and me might enjoy the hope of eternal life and be ultimately brought into his nearer presence. Oh, if you feel you are struggling as a believer, remember what Paul writes to the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The victory of the seed of the woman shall be your victory. All his malice, the malice of Satan will end. Every temptation will cease. All the affliction and opposition, all the cultural pressure to, to conform or to tone down your life or to back off will be over. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle will one day soon belong to the church as well. And so in a turbulent world, marred by conflict, a world full of multiple problems. As you come to another Christmas period where many seek to dress our world in tinsel and glitter, seeking to camouflage the darkness that seeks to hide the truth, remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, shines brightly like the morning star shining in the darkness of the blackest night, reminding us that though things may look ever so bleak, dawn is coming soon. A new day, a new creation, when the God of peace shall crush Satan under our feet, and every last vestige of the curse shall be eradicated and gone forever. That's the glorious hope offered in the gospel. How, oh, my friend, has it captured your heart today? And if it has, is there that element of rejoicing in your life as you contemplate the victory that has been won? and in which you shall share the poisonous effect of sin, 
the pronouncement of judgment, the prophecy of conflict, the proclamation of a great promise now fulfilled in Christ. Let us pray. Eternal and ever-blessed one, oh, how indebted is every believing person to the grace of Almighty God, to the mercy that they have received in Christ. May others share in it today, and for them it will indeed be a wonderful Christmas, and the glory shall be thine. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let us conclude by singing to his praise from Psalm 98, page 129 of the psalm book. Psalm 98, page 129 of the psalm book. O sing a new song to the Lord, for wonders he has done, his right hand and his holy arm, the victory of one. The Lord declared his saving work and made it to be known to all the nations of the world his righteousness is shown. His steadfast love and faithfulness he has remembered well the covenant he made with them, the house of Israel. These verses all sing a new song to the Lord. <clears throat> Oh, sing a new song to the Lord for wonders he has done. His right hand and his holy arm, the victory have won. The and communion of the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with you all now and forever. Amen. <clears throat>